Hello, and welcome to this very first audio edition of The Earthworm, with me, Dan Oliver. This is something that I've been wanting to do for a long while now, uh, actually since I launched The Earthworm at the start of the year, but to be honest, I haven't had the courage to do it until now. Um, I am first and foremost a writer. That is the medium in which I feel most comfortable. Um, writing is great. You get to put a thought into words, see how it reads, and then endlessly edit until you're happy with the outcome. Audio, particularly live audio, as the interview you're about to hear is, or at least was at the time of recording, is a whole different thing. You only get one shot. If you fumble or mumble or trip over your own tongue, there's no taking it back. I don't like that. At all. So why am I doing this? Well, for that you can blame today's guest, Mark Diacono. You may have already read the interview published with Mark in Friday's edition of The Earthworm. Well, after we got off the call, there was a bit of a follow-up conversation over email. I'd asked him to send me some photos to accompany the piece, which he kindly did. But the other thing he did was to ask me whether I'd ever considered posting the audio recordings of my interviews as sort of podcasts. I told him I had considered it, and I outlined my reservations. Um, I won't read you Mark's full email pep talk right now, but suffice to say I was encouraged. Um, And so... Here it is, the Earthworm FM. Now, if you're thinking, but why would I bother listening to an interview that I've already read in full several times and shared with all of my friends? Uh, Well, the truth is, there's always a lot of chat that doesn't make it into my published interviews, as I'm sure you can imagine. There are loads of reasons why a section of dialogue might get cut from the written edit. Usually it's to do with space and length. You know, there's a limit to how long an email people are willing to tolerate. Other times something might feel a little too tangential to the main thrust of the interview. And uh, other times it's simply that, you know, some magical quality uh, from speech is somehow lost in translation when it gets transcribed onto a page. And so something that sounded really good doesn't read really good. So in the conversation that follows, you can hear Mark in his own words explain exactly how he went from unemployable layabout to successful food writer, grower and cook. You'll be able to hear about his personal no-fly policy and why it's not something that many people know about him. And best of all, you'll be able to enjoy his lovely Devonian lilt. So without further ado, I present to you my conversation with the champion of unusual edibles and master of plot-to-plate cooking, Mark Diacono. Enjoy! Your, your kind of your your bio is uh, is is even though everything is very closely linked, it's kind of quite eclectic sounding. You know, writer, grower, cook, photographer. There's a lot going on. Um, yeah. Would you? Could you? If you are able, take me on a kind of whistle stop tour of you know how you got to be, how you got to arrive at where you are now. Like, what was that? journey through all those different what seem like different careers yeah um well, yes um I'll, I'll go i'll go right back yeah please i'll try i'll try and you know i'm i'm never knowingly under talk but i'll try and keep it punchy <laughs> um uh grew up deeply not deeply idle but it looked like deeply idle because i didn't know what i wanted to do and i didn't feel like i had a place in the world you know i didn't know anything so i 
maintained a very healthy unemployableness for a great many years. Uh, and then um, got slightly bored with this kind of cycle of working in an outdoor education centre, cooking, uh, lots of kids around doing all of that stuff, uh, and then being unemployed, maybe going travelling around Europe. I then went to Winchester University with a friend um, who had an interview there. I was sat in the room um, in the foyer reading the prospectus and the lady behind the desk said, um, anything take your fancy? And I said, well, I always liked environmental stuff when I was... Uh, when I was at school and she said well that's lucky and tapped on the window and this guy was walking past who happened to run the environmental course <laughs> uh, and he uh, came in and I'm like well, what's going on you know I felt like one of those sailors in, in a Laurel and Hardy film you know, <laughs> uh, or one of those people who becomes a sailor you know yeah. passed over the head and dragged off um, <laughs> and, and he was like yeah yeah well, um, how old are you I'm like 26 and he said um, what, what qualifications have you got and I said I've got an E and an O at A level uh, he said, you're in, you're 26. Uh, I'm like, okay, what am I doing? When do I come back? Um, slightly longer story than that, but I, I did it and I, and I, I realised that um, maybe after so much idleness I should commit. So I committed and I did all right um, and then I did a master's and luckily all the environmental stuff, the person who was uh, externally examining my master's offered me a job for a, uh, 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 the consultancy I wanted to work for in London, uh, which was kind of environmental stuff. Um, and, and it was a kind of multidisciplinary thing, you know, lots of um, historic garden design, lots of kind of interesting garden design, like um, a lot of the stuff for Eden was done there. Mm. Um, I did a lot of landscape stuff, so advising local authorities and writing, all that sort of thing. Anyway, I then realised that I was relatively unemployable, um, so formed my own kind of business doing that, which I did for a while, and then carried on doing that at the same time as having got the bug to grow things, hmm. um, which was when I met my wife. Um, she was a big gardener, I really wasn't, um, but I had a garden, uh, so I was very attracted. And um, I just did that thing blokes do of going, well, spuds, and that's what we do. I'll put some of those in the ground. And I got the bug, and to, to the point that I then, um, we, you know, those tiddly nights when you think, oh, should we go and find somewhere with an acre or something. So I moved back to Devon because I was in Kent at the time um, and bought a place with a couple of acres and then a place with 17 acres. And yeah. did that Again, that thing men do of just running at it when you don't know what you're doing uh, and think, well, if I do it big enough, maybe it'll work. Uh, yeah. Carry me by its own, yeah, <laughs> its own momentum uh, over the line. Um, and that's what I did. That, that became Otter Farm um, where I grew lots of things. And again, because I didn't know what I was doing, I thought, I got led by flavour, really, and, and lots of things that I wanted to grow. Unusual, yeah. some climate change stuff. I started to look up things and go, oh, pineapples might be tricky, um, but maybe almonds might be possible, you know, maybe yeah. peaches might be possible. And and it went on like that. And then I started to blog about it. Um, so, you know, I guess, you know, your prototype substack, this is, you know, yeah. 15, 20, God, crikey, 18 years ago. Um, and kept writing about it and someone said do you want to write a book and uh, there we are yeah um, so it started it started with ingredients oh not even ingredients the pro like you know planting planting veg plants and then that became ingredients so that because and then that and what, and what about the cooking i know you said you had some experience of like cooking 
Oh, and, that was... Um, but that, that wasn't like that was, nothing gourmet. Yeah. That's not like, and now you're going to write a cookbook. <laughs> so we're talking about major carbohydrates and cheese. It yeah, is, is, yeah. Is that, that was the nature of that cooking. And lots of fun though it was. Um, yeah, it didn't really um, lay the basis for anything. So how did um, you, that develop into, you know, like, I write fancy cookbooks and have associations with all these fancy chefs? Uh, yeah, well, it's... it's um, I think there's a few things, really. I think... Um, I mean... I guess the, 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 the real kind of light bulb moment was, for me was when the first time I ate mulberries. And I couldn't believe that we all weren't eating mulberries every day. I mean, easily still, um, you know, the loveliest fruit I've ever eaten. Mm. Um, and I realised I had to grow them myself if I wanted to eat them kind of frequently. Um, and, and then it was just that thing of what else am I going to do apart from, uh, you know, shovel them into my mouth uh, greedily every, every August. Um, and Jane Grigson was the answer, you know, her fruit and vegetable book to me were, and still are, you know, absolute joys of, of um, cooking and just being inquisitive and also doing that thing, you know, David Bowie was always sort of half accused of, which is um, just go near to people who are good at stuff mm. um, and let it rub off. You know, just go ahead. What do you do with this? And then you, you know, and then and, and whether that's virtually in books and now online, or whether it was in person. Um, and I, and I really promised myself actually when I left that job in London that I, when you know, and I kind of realised I was relatively unemployable, is that I would not pretend ever again to be someone or something that I wasn't. I wouldn't. You know, I always felt like I was about to be found out. And, and hell's teeth, I still do. Um, but um, I just wrote like I was me I didn't try and be anyone else you know hmm. um, and that was really terrible at the start and then it got better and it's the same with the cooking you're going I wonder if this will work with this and half the time the answer is a really big fat no um, but if you play and read and taste and keep working it out cooking is mostly a matter of get some good ingredients and put them sensitively together doing as little as harm as you can, you know, the Hippocratic Oath of Blood in, <laughs> in the kitchen too. Um, and that's really it, you know, do it for long enough and you get less crap. Yeah. I, I, felt, I felt that the gardening world, because I've come into the gardening world professionally, uh, only fairly recently, um, you know, my background is in journalism, but not necessarily writing about gardens or gardening but I found it to be a very you know we've always talked about Joe found it to be a very kind of welcoming and open community from really? what I understand the food community to call it that might not be doesn't seem to me from the outside to be quite as welcoming it seems a bit more like elbows out lots of people shouting at each other you know <laughs> how, did, you, did you find that you were am I wrong or you know did you find that, that it, was it kind of tricky to break through no I um I, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I, I think there's, I think to a, if you, if we were going to caricature the two worlds, I think that's really strong. You know, I think you're really right. You know, the gardening one is very, very warm, and there's not a whole lot of, um, you know, all that stuff. And the food world, there is more of that. Um, and I think, I think for a while, I, I felt like I was a sort of, you know, a sort of boy in the bag, Nigel Slater, I guess, who sits on the fence between the two. And, and it seemed perfectly logical to me. It seemed like, um, you know, publishers quite like you to be one or the other, you mm. know, as if you listen to music, but you can't play it. You yeah, know, yeah. It's, it's like, sorry. Um, you know, it, it, and it never really made sense to me. So I, I never really felt like I was in both worlds. I, uh, but I, I still felt like I had the pleasure of both. Um, 
and I, I guess I write more food than gardening now would probably be the case, um, although that does vary from year to year. But um, uh, yeah, this this there's definitely a bit more, you know, um, there's, a, there's a bit more elbows out, you know. But I think there are so many lovely people in the food world as well, you know, really kind of genuinely. Um, here's the ladder rather than the sole of my shoe. You know, it's, yeah. uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of that goes on and, and some really, really um, genuinely kind of wanting to share and kind of move people up. Um, and, and I think that that's a really big thing. And I think that's a really important thing. Um, so now, I, you know, I, uh, I, I guess I was plowing a little bit of a furrow that wasn't too competitive in that I was a lot of the time about unusual or forgotten or climate change stuff. Um, with a bit of the plot to play as well. So, um, you know, and nobody's really challenging Nigel for his kind of place, at the, you know, mm -hmm. at, the, at the pinnacle. So um, it was quite nice to be able to kind of play in the space that was underneath. And there are a lot of people doing that now, and, and many of them do it really interestingly. Yeah. And um, in terms of the growing then, was that experience, you said, you know, you had the house and you had the girlfriend um, and you had the potatoes, was that was that kind of your first experience of of gardening in any real sense, or you know, one of these people that actually you know you your family were keen gardeners growing up, and you were out there every every day, every weekend, whatever? Literally not. No, there were there were two. Um, that, that, yes, it was absolutely my first experience of any kind of gardening. You know, and 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 then I would have been what would I have been? You know, early thirties. Oh right, okay. You know, no, my my, you know. Gardening, really, there were two sort of, you know, fairly barren yellow patches of where grass might supposedly exist in my childhood, you know, front and back of the house. Hmm. Um, and, and that kind of, um, that cylindrical stack of, um, you know, of, 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 of um, apparently uh, fire-worthy items that might, you know, <laughs> contain old slippers, yeah. uh, you know, wrappings, everything in the corner. And that really was it. I mean, you know, I, 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 there was no such thing as gardening that went on um, when I was a kid um, in the family, you know. Um, and 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 that's that's how it was. I never got. I always I always thought it was a waste of time. If can I, you know, genuinely, that, so, some things haunt me really badly. And one of them is watching. The, I remember a really clear memory of watching Gardeners World, and I must have been like thirteen or fourteen, and it was on. I think I was at my mum's. And I, and I really remember thinking, geez, if I ever get into this, somebody shoot me. Do you know what I mean? I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't understand it. I was like, why would you, why would you mess around in a space around your house, creating this false environment? Yeah. When there's all this nature out, why would you do that? I, I couldn't, I, I, I mean, I thought, have you just run out of things that you find interesting? Yeah. And of course, as I, I now know that this is, simply setting yourself up for a later fall in life. You know, uh, one of my oldest friends who talks nonsense nearly all the time, but one true thing he said, he said, the trouble is, Mark, in the end, everybody loves Fleetwood Mac. And it, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a great curse, because, yeah. you, you know, I, again, I remember, I remember uh, again, about the same age going, how, how does anyone like Van Morrison over Jim Morrison? I, I, I couldn't comprehend it. Yeah. And then, of course, fast forward a few years, and you're going, wow, wow, yeah, love it. You know, and, <laughs> yeah. and this is what happens. Yeah, especially if you're a man, we we get overtaken by um, our dislikes come back to haunt us. Yeah, yeah. But I think there's. I don't know if also. I mean, all of that is true. But I don't know if also something has changed in 
it's hard because I don't necessarily have the kind of perspective, the hindsight, but in, in you know, watching Gardener's World today, maybe tonally might have been the same as when you were watching it as a teen, but but maybe the emphasis is more on like natural and sustainable and biodiversity and whatever. And maybe it feels like less of this like strange little like display at the back of the house. Though obviously people are still doing that as well. Um, yeah, no, I think I, it really feels to me like a, um, a sort of medium of expression as well, mm. as, well as it, as well as the, the thing itself, as well as the actual, there it is physically. It feels to me like, Music, writing, cooking, uh, whatever is to play, and but also to sort of. Um, I hate sentences that start the older I get, but the older I get, the more I value those things. That time I spend where my um, where I'm doing enough physically to occupy my brain into not looking for something to do or think about. So that it then kind of uncouples from needing to find something to think about. Um, and it makes leaps and I think about things in a way that I don't otherwise. And I find that a lot with gardening, which is not to say it's an unthinking process, but a lot of it you're very happily pruning, planting, weeding, whatever it may be. Um, and just that sort of activity, but also with the kind of classic cliche hands in the soil, mm. um, which is, again, in itself so rewarding. But I do find that type of immersion that frees the brain. I find it, like walking does that for me too, you know, uh, you know, walking, walking, rather than just going down the shops. And yeah. I, I, I really value those things because my brain is um, always looking. It's always trying to, it's distractible. There's a, oh, there's a donut, you know, there's a virtual donut. It's mm. after it, you know, it wants a bite of it. Um, so I really like that element of, been in the garden as well yeah yeah yeah, that makes sense and i think um some of i think a lot of people well okay so for for those of us and i'm not i don't want to put myself in the same category as you because i've got like eight fruit and veg plants out there but um for, for people who do have experience of like growing their own food or have even tried some potatoes once um it seems like there's a kind of obvious relationship between what we grow and what we eat. Um, but it seems like in the wider world, maybe that connection has been, is being eroded, if not like completely <clears throat> lost, severed. Um, you know, it, do you, does that, is that something that upsets you or worries you? Or do you think actually maybe it, not everyone needs to know what it is to grow something and eat something you can just go to shop? No, I think, I think it's a really crucial thing. And, and, and funny enough, you know, go, thinking back to that place where I used to cook this outdoor education place, it was at the coast um, down in Devon, where I'm from. And it was really interesting because that was always brought home to me. I mean, you know, I, it, my dad and I lived in a council house on the edge of the town and all of this stuff, and we didn't have money and stuff. But it was quite interesting then to see people coming to this place from inner city Bristol um, and that there were some real stark differences, you know. So I really remember clearly there was um, there was a girl. She must have been I don't know, ten, eleven, something like that. And she was stood at the top of the field. It kind of slopes down um, to the cliff and out to sea. This gorgeous view. And um, I kind of you know said to her, hey, hey, are you okay? You know, because she was just staring. And and she said, is that the ocean? 
Never seen it. Right. Never seen it. She couldn't quite comprehend the enormity of it or the itness of it. Yeah. And and I remember, you know, back in the day, right back in the early days of River Cottage when I was a bit involved there, is people didn't know where a potato came from. You know, there was a guy who, um, I say guy, he was, I don't know, 13, 14, um, he'd supposed that they come from trees. And I was like, initially like, blimey. Um, but then, of course, you know, if you'd have thrown me at age 13, 14 into the middle of Bristol, that would have been an, an environment that was entirely alien to me. But I think it's so crucial that we can um, teach, educate children, the next generations, in such a way that this, you know, the fundamentals of life, soil, you know, the 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 the, the miniature biome that's going on there, that on which all life depends. All life depends on that few centimeters of topsoil. But the the connectivity of what happens to that and how we get food from it to ourselves with as little embedded carbon and as little embedded energy and water as we can and, and heal that kind of terribly fractured um, food system. I, without that understanding, even without having to get into it and grow it yourself, I, I don't think we have a lot of, um, we don't have the potential that we should have for repairing it and we really need to because you know it's a big part of the state that we're in and i do think that even growing a small bit of food yourself you don't know you know who wants to be self-sufficient for god's sake but even growing a little that magic is still i mean i've been doing it well, well, 20 years and a little more and i still can't believe that seed pops up mm. it's just a, it's, it, as, as laughable as it sounds it's like a crazy miracle i look at it and go are you serious? You know, how <laughs> yeah. turned into, um, you know, spring, the, the fact that spring comes, and, and that's, again, another thing that I get from growing is not just the four seasons, because when I was in London, it was hot and dry or wet and cold. It's that I get all the kind of micro changes between the seasons and within the seasons. And, and it's those things that kind of set your mind a little more seriously about um, the, the big stuff. So yeah, I do, I do. I do think it's hugely important. You know, like yeah. really hugely important and very easy. You know, kind of like a really easy thing to um, make some big wins on. Yeah, and do you th I mean how? Maybe it's too big a question to get into now. But but how do you think that that relationship became broken, or like what is preventing us from, or more people from, from having con that connection back with their, with their food, yeah. where their food comes from. I think it's a couple of things. I think, um, you know, school is a kind of an easy one because, you know, I, I think it was Ireland until, you know, certainly the last decade or so, it, it used to be um, compulsory that there was an allotment in the school. Hmm. Well, I mean, it's like something as simple as that. You think, okay, easy win, because the connection is kind of... The, so on one hand, you've got, um, you know, if we could put that back or don't lose that kind of thing, which is really important... Um, but we've got such massive, massive um, forces coming the other way, which are um, slightly, you know, the, on one hand, they're corporate. You know, you've got the big um, uh, interest in terms of, yes, supermarkets, but also bigger than that, the corporations that own, um, you know, all of the varieties of this, or they own the seeds. You know, everything about food production is owned by very few people. You know, there's... There's 1,500 types of banana, yet we eat only one. You know, all of this stuff that's really kind of powerful behind it. But also you've got this kind of um, 
there's this, I don't, I, I want to say instinct, but I don't think it is instinct. There's something in us that wants to keep doing what we've done for the last however many thousand years, which is to increasingly specialise. Mm-hmm. So instead of being people who can go hunt, grow, cook, build, whatever, we go, I'm going to get good at that thing and I'm going to outsource all the other stuff. And we don't want to know about it, you know. Um, we just want to do our thing and free up time. And in our free up time, we then kind of soak in lots of media. And I, I'm not against, um, you know, all of any of kind of, I'm not when someone goes, oh, back in the 50s, it was great, you know. Uh, um, I, I just think that we have increased that specialism to such a point that we're either um, virtually in contact with stuff or we're working in our very specialised field. And hence, all of this stuff becomes strange to us, you know. Um, other people clean up after us. Other people mm. repair our cars, you know. And God's sake, I don't, I don't even want to know what's under the bonnet of a car. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm as guilty of this as everyone else. But I think the combination of all of that, somebody constantly um, wanting to sell us the same season, 365 days a year when we go out and shop, we're losing, too, it's gone too much. And I think that's the difficulty. We can pull it back quite easily, I think, if there's a will to, with enough people in mm-hmm. enough power. But then, you know, that's a big, that's a big if. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. Um, but that leads me, I think, to something I wanted to ask you, which is about, you mentioned it briefly earlier, that the fact that you uh, tend to grow a lot of unusual or forgotten foods. Um, what do you mean by forgotten and how or why do you think certain things have come to be that way? Yeah. Well, it, 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 uh, forgotten stuff is really interesting because um, at some point it would have been uh, popular, interesting, widely used and, it, and, and, and usually for whatever reasons, um, for a number of reasons, it's been that popularity has been lost so it might be that it doesn't suit the current food system so mulberry is a great example of that you know um you know if you if you're growing mulberries or you're down the road from mulberries you can get them to your kitchen and you can eat them happy days everyone's happy if you're going to make a stop at uh, you know a centralized um facility that then sends it out to various by the time you do that you've got juice left you know because they're so delicate and full of so a mulberry doesn't suit the supermarket system so we don't eat them it's got nothing to do with the deliciousness um it could be something like a medlar where you you know which is a kind of you know a fruit that was really really popular but um it's sort of like a, a an apple that looks a bit odd um but it's generally eaten kind of half soft or beyond you know even softer and again we're not great at going hang on a minute that looks like an apple that's going off mm. um so again there it is and, and people go oh, i don't know it's probably because there's no recipes we don't know how to use them but that's not the way around it is it's yeah. the you know it's the egg before the chicken um there are other things i guess like um you know at, at the supermarket they what do they want to do they want to sell you they want to sell you the same thing every day so if you keep coming back for it every day da, 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 and you only want five herbs i mean what what do we use you know rosemary um you know rosemary thyme parsley and since jamie came along hey coriander um you know and 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 that's it and we might go lemon time if we're a little bit swish you know tarragon mm. if we want it with chicken you know but we do we go for i don't know chervil mostly not you know and he says absolutely never nobody eats lovage you know and and 
these are all wildly easy herbs to grow, you know. Um, something like Sweet Sicily is a forgotten one. You know, it was used a lot in, um, uh, uh, you know, centuries ago with um, the sour fruit because it's kind of gently aniseed, but it gives the impression of sweetening. So if you have it with gooseberries, rhubarb, you know, some of the currants, then it seems to sweeten them, that, that slight vague aniseedness, but it has this impression of sweetening. Uh, that means you can use less sugar with it. So it's got even more reason to be mm. enjoyed and loved now. So I think it's a number of things, you know, um, uh, you know, doesn't suit the supermarket system is nearly always it. Um, yeah. and, and, and safety, you know, if you, even if you look at something like potatoes, the ones that sell most are the ones that we know in the shops. And mm. then by no means, I mean, God, they're an upgrade on the ones you buy in the shops because you get them from, plot to plate really quickly and all of that stuff but um there are so many like international kidney or um shetland blue that are shetland black and that are so different to the ones you buy in the shops mm. um but we are tribute bands who like to sing someone else's song you know mm. and, and and it's lovely when you get away from it you're like oh my god you know there's so much of this amazing food out there that breaks the kind of unspoken rule that Surely the best, if it was that great, it would be in the supermarket. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, well, exactly. And it, it's a kind of, there's a, I guess there's a vicious cycle there, right? Where it's like, well, consumer demand means that they're good, the supermarket's going to sell certain things, but because that's the only thing they sell, that's the only thing consumers are buying. And so that's the only thing that, so yeah, all these other varieties yeah. just drop by the wayside because no one wants them, but it's because they don't know that they can have them. They don't know that they can have them and, and they don't know what they can do with them. This is the other thing, you know, so... Um, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and that's really important. So um, in that selfless way of mine, I keep writing recipes for stuff that nobody ever uses. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and it's quite nice. You know, I love it. Um, and, and, and really, you know, uh, there was, you know, you know, John Peel, I often say this, John Peel, you know, the old DJ, he's one of his favourite bands was The Fall. And he always used to say that if they brought out an album he didn't like, he would presume it, that he didn't know how it was good yet. Right. And that's such a nice way to come up any ingredient, you know, even if you really don't like it, um, there's always something where it will shine. Although lemon balm is testing my patience. <laughs> You're right. Totally is. Totally is. Um, on, I want to just skip ahead then, because I want to talk to you about um, Herb, which is obviously, other, other than the one that's in the box back there, your um, most recent. Um, ah, yes. Uh, and do you, I feel like, yeah, I, I mean, I grow, what, I mean, I, I've got a handful of different herbs out there, but probably nothing that exciting. Um, most people have a rosemary in their garden. Uh, they might buy, they might have a mint. They might not necessarily want the mint they've got. And um, they might have like buy little pots of parsley or basil, you know, in the supermarket and then use a couple of sprigs and then they die. Um, you know, it, do you think part of the issue there is that we've forgotten how to use, her I mean, I feel like herbs are, are, are real like, under sung member of both our kitchens and our gardens i mean we're not we don't a lot of them like like you were saying with um uh, well a lot of the ones you mentioned are actually also very attractive as well as mm, um totally that useful but yeah. We for yeah no i agree i think they're, they're, they're under sung in in every way you know indoors outdoors the whole deal you know cooking and the garden i, I couldn't agree more these these are the transformers you know these are the these are the clothes that other ingredients dress up in you know, and and a handful of them by the back door will change every meal you eat if you want it to. You know, they're so powerful. Mm. Um, and if you're 
nervous about gardening or you've not um, grown herbs before, go for the perennials. You know, go for the perennial herbs that are really hard to kill and very easy to get flavour from. Um, I mean, there's lots of there's lots of kind of semi rules that I apply because I'm you know I'm asked to kind of design edible gardens and also herb gardens, and none of my rules. I mean, I don't stick to my rules, but they're kind of useful thinking things. So you know, I, if if you came to me and said, Mark, I want a I want a herb garden, what do you suggest? I would say, hey, Dan, what what what's the stuff that you eat most? And I imagine you would say, you know, rosemary, thyme, parsley, coriander, maybe, and some mint. Mm. And my first thing is, right, okay, you're not growing them. Yeah. Because uh, for a number of reasons, but what one of them is, you know, you have to dedicate so much more space to those five things to be able to grow all you want of them that you're excluding everything else. So, and what you'll end up with is not the visual side of your garden. Mm. You'll just get flavour, but the plants will be constantly being harvested from. So if you at least, you know, conceptually... Rid yourself of those, buy them, steal them, right. whatever it is you need to do, and look at the other things that will look amazing, that give you, even if you're going, okay, I won't grow um, thyme, but I'll grow lemon thyme, I'll grow orange thyme, mm. and lemon thyme takes time into spring, and orange thyme takes time into autumn, you know, that just that one shift in variety will give you something completely different, yeah. um, flavour-wise and mood-wise. Rosemary, grow ginger rosemary. It's extraordinary, you know. Lemon verbena. If you're not growing lemon verbena, then you're denying yourself one of the great pleasures yeah. um, in the kitchen and on your hands. You know, yeah. um, salad bonnet, um, shiso. You know, it, shiso. It's. I don't know if you've grown or no, tasted no, shiso. shiso. It looks kind of like a, a slightly papery nettle, and they come in kind of teddy boy socks, green and a kind of deep purple, and. It, it, the flavour is somewhere between mint and cumin. It's extraordinary. Mm. And you don't realise that there was a gap. Right there, <laughs> yeah. there it is. Yeah. You know, and it's one of those revelatory, delightful things. You know? uh, so, I mean, a lot of the things I know that you've, you've talked about before, um, or that you, that, you know, you sell via to farm, like, um, yeah, almonds you mentioned, and Szechuan pepper, uh, chocolate vines, you know, these sorts of things. They, they sound very, uh, they sound very exotic and complicated. Um, is that is that the case? They're, 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 I mean, they're, they're so rewarding to grow. <clears throat> you know, when when you um, you know when you harvest your first lot of almonds, you're like, this is all right, you know. But actually, all you've done is plant the bleeding things in the right place, <laughs> yeah. and and occasionally, um, you know, strim underneath, um, and and come back some years later and go, aren't I brilliant? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, it, and it's the plant that's done all the work. This yeah. is the joy, um, you know, and, and, and um, you know, some things aren't as, you know, you try a few things out and you're like, mm, that's, it grew, but um, I wish it hadn't. Yeah. Um, you know, but something like chocolate wine, that's interesting, you know, so Akibia quinata, so lots of people grow it as a kind of, you know, uh, uh, as a kind of scrambling climbing thing. Um, but in a good year, and it's called chocolate wine, not because the, anything tastes of chocolate, because the scent is of the flower is, is chocolatey. But um, occasionally, in a good summer, you can get these kind of large kiwi fruit-sized fruit um, that, if you crack them open, have, it has this kind of lovely melon-flavoured um, pulp in, inside that's just amazing, you know. So, yeah, it, I love it. I mean, and it is part of that... Um, 
the kinder surprise thing you know it's like yeah. what's it going to be this time oh it's crap yeah uh, you know which is which is not ideal but most of the time it's like that's amazing or that's yeah. just and, and even if it's familiar things like peaches yeah oh first peach i ever ate i mean i literally remember every second of that few minutes <laughs> was just home first homegrown peaches like that's the first peach i've ever eaten it literally just feels like the first peach I've ever eaten. yeah Oh, it's funny because it kind of comes back to what you were saying earlier, but, um, you know, like, oh, I like Maris Piper potatoes. I'll try growing a Maris Piper potato. But it's funny, like, even looking out now, I think I've tried maybe there's a couple of things that are a bit more unusual, but, you know, a lot of my go-tos every year, um, like every year I go tomatoes, like every year, and mm. I have good results, and they're delicious. It's great. But, but then I can just go into the shop literally any day of the year and buy tomatoes. So... Maybe I should be growing, using that space to grow some more unusual things that I could only enjoy in this space. I think I think that's um, that's one of the things. One of the things I would suggest is, and I, I never say don't grow anything, but I, what I would say is, um, you know, there are there, a place where there is a lot of reward is if you grow flavour rather than volume. If you go for, um, don't do. I mean, you know, seventy-five percent or 78% even, of edible growing space in this country, so allotments, front gardens, whatever, where you're growing food, 78% of it is dedicated to main crops, spuds, carrots, onions, cabbage, all of which I like. Hmm. But if you're dedicating 80% virtually of the space to the cheapest, most widely available, most disease-prone food you can think of that tastes no different to the stuff you buy in shops... What are you still buying? You're buying the expensive stuff that <laughs> yeah. tastes amazing if you grow it. You know, it, it, it. We should be growing the expensive stuff. We should be widening our larder. Um, and of course, yes, there may be um, to varying degrees a kind of um, a, 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 a compulsion, a need to provide ourselves with more than flavour. We need volume. We need you know to reduce our food bills, all of that. And I really think that's going to go crazy in the next mm. year or so. Um, but we can still do it in an interesting way. So if you're going to grow tomatoes, I'd be growing shimmer and I'd be growing uh, honeycomb and costaluto fiorentino, you know, amazing varieties that you can't buy in the shops um, because the shops quite understandably want yield and they want disease resistance uh, and reliability, all of which are good things. But when you eat a dull tomato that you've nursed, mm. <laughs> you know, Valentine's Day when you might have sown it, and you're going, hey, that's as, that's as good as the one I bought in the shops. It, it, we can aim so much higher than that, even yeah. if we really need it as a part of our food. You know, we need it as a kind of financial thing. Um, we can be growing the best potatoes, onions, carrots, whatever it may be. Yeah, absolutely. And you're, um, you mentioned how you, you kind of th- launched yourself into 17 acres uh, with a kind of... Don't know naive enthusiasm we're just thinking like this is going to work because it must gravity will, will will drag me through but um have there how has that experience been for you since the otter farm project sort of started and you know have you has it been plain sailing or have it has you know have there been bumps in the road a load of bumps i mean we're not at the original farm anymore so i'm now in a kind of uh, regular garden but um it, it really honestly it i can't tell you how um how it, how it started, we got married. On the way home, we heard about this thing, you know, this end of terraced house with 17 acres at the back. And 
my wife went in the house, I went into the field, and we kind of then swapped briefly and and bought it. And she said, what, you know, a, a, a couple of weeks after we moved in, she was like, whoa, what's this massive mortgage we've got? What are you doing, Diak? You know, because, um, you know, she realised that I didn't see, appear to have a plan. <laughs> and all I could say was sort of mulberry. Um, and, and, and that's literally all it was. I was just like, okay. And then the idea of this field being there, you know, it, 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 and again, Jane Grigson's book, I went to look in it to see what to do with these mulberries that would grow. And I, it, I, in getting to mul mulberries, I got meddlers. And I was mm. like, well, they sound interesting. Uh, and that's, honestly, I, then that's how it grew. I went, okay, I'll order 10 of those. And I was still doing my, you know, this was just to be doing at the weekends and, you know, evenings and stuff. Um, and then it just took over. I just started looking at, crikey, someone's growing Szechuan pepper. I'm going to try that. And, mm. um, you know, things got added. I, I remember um, I was with my daughter, who's very young. She just had a, a globe. And this guy, Trent, who um, had helped a bit, um, like a day a week for a short while, and then he went back to America. And he was the loveliest man, and still is the loveliest man, and was really kind of helped with establishing and kind of moving it forward with me. He... Um, he'd moved to Seattle and then just up into Canada and we're looking on this thing and I'm going that's where Trent is and we're looking you know on the globe and and then I realized that it was the same latitude as mm. where he was as where we are and I'd been reading about pecans being in the low part of Canada and I went right and then when she was asleep I went online and found a, 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 a nut nursery in Canada and badgered him into sending me 30 tiny little <laughs> seedlings of, of pecans and planted them, you know, yeah. and, and that's how it was. There was no real plan. I was not thinking at any point, this will take over my real work. I'm just, you know, arsing around and spending a very little money, um, having a, you know, like spending a tenth of what I would if it had been golf or something like yeah, that, yeah. you know, um, and just enjoying it. And, um, and I started writing about it as much as anything on the blog to remind myself of what I'd done. Mm. Um, and there it was, accidental, um, you know, it accidentally took over. Yeah. Quite ridiculous, isn't it? It is a bit, but also, um, you know, I just think how in my, couldn't possibly even measure it in fractions of acres garden that I've got, like how much time that takes, you know, so managing a, a plot that size, uh, even as a hobby, is like, a it's full time thing, a full time hobby. I, honestly, I, I would, you know, I would, um, uh, I, w I would, you know, and the trouble with 17 acres is you, do, and this is what I really love about just having a regular garden, you know, literally is a regular garden, is that there's a sort of blaseness that comes with things where you're like, um, I'll put them over there. You know, yeah. and and then uh, and and now I'm like, geez, okay, I, every square centimeter counts, you know. Yeah. Um, and of course, if you're looking at the 17 acres, and you've got I don't know, four of them's vineyard, you know, you've got maybe I don't know, 30 orchards of varying sizes, and you've got a forest garden, and you've got a veg patch, and a wall garden. Still, most of that job is mowing. Right. You know, and it's yeah. like. Most of the time, you're just bouncing along in this tractor, you know, trying not to <laughs> run over plants. It's yeah. what most of it is. Um, uh, yeah, it is. It's a load of work and a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and and it, it felt like I'd found that thing 
that I should be doing, having discovered how deeply unemployable I was. You know, right, so, yeah. and what was nice was that you know I, I was able to kind of shift gradually, accident into it being what I do. You know, yeah. Um, as my oldest friend said, you know, self-unemployed. Uh, which is you know, what, what all of us freelancers are. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it, it, it's a big old space. It's a big old space. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so your, your garden now that I might be able to sort of, I can't see anything, but through, the, the little window, the little window. What's your approach there then? Do you, are you still, do you still use it to grow food? Or do you have anything that's just like pointlessly beautiful or, you know, what, what, um, What's, what's your approach by there? It's a, 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 there's a lot of room for pointlessly beautiful in our lives, isn't there? Or should it be? Um, yeah, so we, we, we moved here two years ago and we did that thing that, I, again, uh, a, a sign of middle age, isn't it? Um, we actually did that thing of um, we're just going to leave it alone and see what happens, you know? Mm. Um, I, I never thought I'd have the patience for that, you know? Um, and we totally did. And the lady had been here before. She planted some really interesting stuff, lots of really good herbs, lots of different varieties of stuff. I've still no idea. Um, you know, there's, I think there's like six clearly different lavenders mm. um, and lots of them. And I still don't know which they are, but they're very, very different. And she's been very good about that stuff. And then we've just, this year, it's just started to plant stuff in, you know, and um, there's a lot of, it's a lot of emphasis on the perennials, lots of uh, emphasis on the herbs trying to make, um, I guess, a forest garden in principle, you know, where everything's kind of planted in, um, following the model or the structure of a, a young woodland without the kind of big trees at the top so that there's light underneath. But my wife is a medical herbalist, so um, that's interesting because she's looking at herbs and other plants in a different way to me. Mm. Um, and that's nice because, you know, she'll be like, okay, I want to plant some of this, and I'm like, what can you use it for? And and it won't be edible. Mm. Um, you know, so we have a slight tug of war. Um, but it's usually that, that that Brian Clough thing, you know, when he was asked um, what happens when you have a disagreement with a player. And it's like, that's great. I invite him into my office. We chat about it for five minutes and we agree I was right. Um, you know, and, and, and that's how it goes. But it's really, it's really fascinating to me to see herbs that I'm familiar with and others that I'm not. Um, in this other light, you know, so it's it's very much a garden that's kind of got that. Yes, and there is um, there is plenty of space for um, you know uh, a, 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 a pointless beauty, you know, and a lot of it I would never have got in there, and maybe my 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 wife wouldn't either, but it works, you know, yeah. and and so it will stay. Yeah, and I know you the, your approach has always been one of like uh you know sustainability and eco-friendly and mm. you know we've talked about the soil and presumably therefore welcoming biodiversity into your garden all of that do you think that that which is kind of objectively a good approach uh is actually in terms like of a morally good approach do you think that the, the, the results you get from it are also good and if so then why is there still so much resistance to adopting such a, a kind of an obviously beneficial model? It's funny, isn't it? I, I, oh, man, I don't know what it is. I, I mean, I, 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 I couldn't garden any other way, I think. And, and I think that, for me, 
and most gardeners who garden even approach in that way, um, I think it's because the result isn't the only thing. So you still get the results, you know, great results. You, you know, if you pay just a slight bit of attention to how you might deal with something rather than just hit it with a chemical, um, it, you know, you, it's no difficulty getting the same results. But um, the, the thing I get most from garden isn't just the results, even though you would think that would be a big deal to me because, and it is a big deal, but it's not the big deal. You know, because I'm a sort of productive gardener, for want of a better phrase. The the doing, you know, the doing of it is so much, you know, I, and it's awful because, again, a bit like, you know, the Jim and Van Morrison, a bit like whatever, you know, uh, gardening in the first place. It feels to me like I'm in danger of being dragged over to the ornamental side um, because so much of the pleasure, it's a bit like fishing. I don't mind if I don't catch anything, which is kind of bonkers. Yeah. But it is the doing that... <laughs> where there is so much reward still. Um, and I think that's really important, you know. I think that's really, really important. And again, second sentence of um, that starts with, you know, the older I get. But the older I get, the, the less wide I'm willing to tolerate the gap between how I feel and how I act. You know, mm -hmm. um, you know I know to varying degrees we're all the kind of, you know, the sum of our inconsistencies or our um, hypocrisies even, you know. Um, we mean to do this, life takes us off down this road. But I try and make that gap increasingly narrow, mm. you know, because, mm. because I, I, I don't want to live at a distance to myself, if that makes any mm. sense. You know, that's, that's really important to me. So it, and it's, it's difficult because it, a lot of the things that are important to me um, you know, it's very easy to be kind of worthy and whatever about, and I, I'm not interested in that, you know, but it's also funny because, so I don't fly, right? Yeah. I don't fly. And that's quite interesting because if you, if you threaten, if you, if you say I don't fly to somebody, it's often taken as a threat. Mm. You know, it's, it's often like, you know, uh, I'm challenging your, you know, awful lifestyle. Um, and, and, I don't mean it like that. So I've often not, I, it's not something that people would kind of associate with me and go, oh, yeah, can you done fly? But I've talked to, you know, a few people um, more recently and they're like, what? And I'm like, I don't fly. And I'm like, why don't you fly? Well, it's like, you know, we're, we're, we're you know, we're the 17% of, we're, we're, we're in the 17% of polluting humans yeah, you know, yeah. who do this and think of it as normal. You know, I, yeah. it's not something that I want to particularly be um, part of, but equally, I don't want to be the backside who's like, you know, a, a sort of East Devon Bono, you know, yeah. um, really not. But it now appears, it now feels to me like to just quietly go about it is all right. Yeah. But it also <laughs> feels like if I could find a way of being quietly, I don't fly, um, because I think it's important that other people who are kind of umming and ahhing about it are not feeling alone, you know, mm. but equally that I don't want to make any particular noise about it, mm. but I, it feels like something that I'd quite like to be out there but without any kind of judgment on anybody else who does. Yeah. But almost just going, there's another island if you fancy being on it um, and I'm not up for throwing tomatoes at the other island, you know. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying I'll never fly again, but it's been something that's always been important to me. Yeah. Always been important to me. So I've flown six times in my life. Right. Um, and 
you know, I, the only time the only time it really kind of gets my goose is, um, you know, when when you've got uh, how can I put it? When you've got prominent people with multiple homes and a greatly consumptive lifestyle who fly endlessly for pointlessness who tell us how to live our life more sustainably that mm. pisses me off yeah and um, because it's just it's it, it's part of the same um it's part of the same elite sucking nonsense that i you know entirely unparty politically yeah. is such a lot of problem in this country so i feel like making it more known that, that i don't fly and, yeah. and I, I live in a particular way but it's very hard to do that without sounding like an ass. um yeah i think what's also hard i mean because so you know as you know i do still fly but infrequently uh, but maybe as much because we haven't had an opportunity to do so yeah, yeah. Uh, of late yeah. but um but you know but i'm like i find with other things you know i'm vegetarian but don't tend to talk about it unless I'm going to eat at someone's house <laughs> or like, I mean, my friends will know, yeah, but like, yeah. or, you know, it, we're out and it comes up because there's a menu and I can only eat certain things. But, and I, and I, and I often feel like, well, maybe I should, like the reasons that I'm vegetarian are important. Like, I didn't just accidentally become vegetarian. And so yeah. maybe yeah. more people should be aware of those things, understand those things. But yeah, there's the arsiness and there's, but there's also the fact that then you just end up getting into a lot of like debates, arguments, people, uh, get upset because they think you're criticizing them like it's some sort of attack yeah. and so I've, I've tended to avoid I don't like conflicts I've tended to just kind of just avoid it and get just get on with it in a, in a private way but 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 probably I should you know especially you know, people who have platforms however modest they are maybe we should be using those platforms for for, for the greater good but then you know not if you're going to put everyone off reading <laughs> I, think I think i think it's i think it's about the doing of it I, I mean partly i think also it's it's that we widely have lost the ability to kind of um happily debate or mm. happily disagree mm. or you know I, I i i i regret that so much that the world has become more binary and we're incapable of having our thoughts challenged and changed you know we're not open to change you mm. know in the way that we used to and i I, I, that bothers me, you know. I feel like, um, you know, I, 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 I feel like I want to have those. I'm really happy if somebody wants to chat about the whole flying thing. That's great. And I don't mind if they... I, 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 I'm not literally not trying to persuade anyone about anything because um, that's... Oh, crikey, that's the easiest way to piss people off um, and look like a nurse. And, and I think we're ably demonstrating we're not willing to look like <laughs> at least to the degree that we can help it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think it, I think it's partly that we we, we need we need uh, you and I maybe we need to find a better way of um, being relaxedly able for that side of us to be known without it um, being. Uh, uh, you know, any kind seen as any kind of um, you know cricket ball delivery. Uh, yeah, not right. wearing a cricket box. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's good, good um, imagery there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, 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 we, I mean, we've already talked about lots of lovely things that I wasn't planning on talking about, but I, I don't kind of have any more set questions. I, I tell you what would be nice, maybe to. Um, to hear from you because I, obviously I, I'm going to plug 
everything and anything that you would like me to. But the, the Substack seems like an obvious one because it's relatively new. But what um, yeah. why? And and I, and I like already. I mean, I've actually um, in the my the post that I'm going to publish tomorrow, I'm linking to your story about the piano because I didn't know any of that and I loved it. Um, so what has kind of what what's your thinking behind behind the Substack and of like kind of you know diverging into some slightly different subject matters to what maybe people associate you with? Yeah, well, I think uh, it, I, I used to blog. So I blogged from about 2002. So I was a very early adopter. Um, <clears throat> as I say, entirely for my own benefit to record what I was doing. But it became the place where I learned to write, where I was dreadful, then got better. Um, and it was a place where I, I would write, it was mostly, you know, start off factual, I've just planted this orchard, did it. And then it would become more kind of experience. And then I would find that I was jumping around mm. um, about things. And it started to include, I don't know, there was stuff about my dad dying, um, you know, a friend who took our own life, um, uh, uh, um, nonsense, leaps between things, you know. Mm. Um, uh, because I as, as we were talking about earlier, I don't kind of, I don't have this gardening side and a food side. They're part of a kind of um, a whole me, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I've really had this urge to get back doing that, but it was a kind of unformed urge. And then Substack just seemed like the most brilliant way of doing that, you know. Um, and Joe Thompson, you know, she, mm -hmm. she, she was like, you've got to do it, you've got to do it. And I'm like, whoa, hang on, what is it? And, and it was really interesting that this thing wasn't just, uh, it was, it, it, it's, it's more than a sort of emailed blog, um, mm. but it's kind of, I'll, you know, leave for people to kind of investigate if they want. But the thing that really appealed to me was that here was a place that I could write about whatever I wanted again. And that I really instantly felt, I like the subscription model where, you know, so for people who aren't familiar with it, you know, some or all of the stuff that a writer puts on it can be on one side of a wall where it's free, but you can keep some stuff behind. Gives people the option to pay for things if they're interested um, or just stay on the free side of the wall or pay because they want to support that writer. And I very quickly figured out when I was chewing over the whole thing was that if I was going to do it, I was it was not going to be the thing that came at the end of the week. This was a place where I could write again like I used to write with the freedom that I used to write, mm. but that I would treat it like the paper, stroke magazine, stroke publication that I most wanted to write for had offered me a column. Mm. You know, so I would do it with the dedication of that, but would do it with the freedom of not having any other boss apart from me. And I thought, you know, okay, I've got some ideas here. I want to do that thing of taking people into the garden. Um, so it's kind of personal, they can see into my patch. Um, but also it's a nice way to introduce people maybe to some plants they might not be familiar with that, you know, um, to varying degrees, easy to grow, all of that. Do some recipes. So I could sit on that food gardening thing again, but I knew I wanted to write about other stuff, but I didn't know what it was. But also I had and have this idea that I really got excited about that will start pretty soon which is to take people live through the process of a book. Mm. So that it will start maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, um, with the one line idea that I had for a book. There it is. There's the, there's the idea for a book. Yeah. You know? It's not this, but it might be, I don't know, 
I'm going to write a book about all the herbs in the garden and how they work with vodka. You know, that one liner. And then take people all the way through to write, okay, let's bump it out into a proper, proper kind of paragraph, into a proposal. How do you get it to an agent? How do you tighten it up? How do you get it to a publisher? How do you deal with a publisher? How do you make it saleable? What are the sections you need? And then through the actual process, because some of this book will require me to travel and do a few things, and I thought, I could do this live. You know, it won't contain the content of the book, but it will contain everything else. So everything that you don't currently see mm. up until publication is going to be there on my Substack. And I got really excited about that because yeah. it occurred to me that I could choose what the hell I wanted to do for this book. And if a publisher didn't want it, I could potentially also publish it mm. on Substack. So it was partly that. It was partly having run lots of courses in garden writing and food writing, thinking that there is a demand here. People want to know, how do I write a proposal? How do I get it in front of an agent? How do I get it in front of a publisher? What do I do? What does it need to contain? Talk me through that. But that was a kind of professional development thing that I could put behind the wall that people might be interested in paying for. And if they weren't, that's fine. Um, just go to the other stuff on the other side of the wall. And I thought, that's a nice deal because it feels like um, it's equitable. And still, most of the stuff that I write on it will be free. But if you've got an interest in that, either professionally or just kind of personally, that's great because it helps to encourage me to do it. It makes it, makes it so it's not free time. Um, and that's a brilliant thing. And that means that I will then just write more and more. I mean, I, I, you know, and, but the, and there are random things, like you said, the piano. Um, story that I published on Monday, you know, that it was such a weird thing, this unexpected stuff, mm, yeah. you know, um, that I'm, I find really exciting. I can just write about what I want, hopefully in an interesting way. And I do think that if people like your writing, they don't really mind if you're writing about cheese or chalk or yeah. China. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, that's what I'm uh, hoping. So, yeah, I'm really excited about it. Yeah. If you made it this far, thanks for listening to this very first audio edition of The Earthworm. Apologies for the slightly abrupt ending to the recording. Um, if I get a sense that people have enjoyed this podcast format, then I will endeavour to professionalise my operation in time for the next one. Personally, I felt really inspired by Mark. I'm fortunate enough that through my work I get the chance to chat to a lot of very interesting people, but it's not that often that an interviewee will change my mindset or my approach. Uh, but Mark did get me thinking, you know, why do I only grow courgettes, tomatoes, strawberries, beans, you know, the stuff that is so widely available year round from the supermarket? There's a whole wide world of weird and wonderful fruit and veg out there. And I'm going to grow some of it. Or try to anyway. I hope you've been equally inspired. Or if not, that you at least enjoyed listening. If you made it this far, hopefully you did. Thanks again and see you next time. This is Dan from The Earthworm, signing off.